0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Not just leading writers and thinkers, but leading issues. And what bigger issue is there than the brain? Um, We've done a number of shows before on it, one with the Columbia University Professor Raphael used a couple of weeks ago that was a particularly interesting conversation we talked about his lectures in neuroscience which suggests that the human brain is perhaps the most intricate and fascinating object in the known universe it's an intriguing idea how are we supposed to make sense of it since we ourselves are both uh, a creation and created by our own brains uh, this issue of consciousness has been perpetual theme how do we get consciousness we did a show with neil tice who has a new book out notes on complexity a scientific theory of connection consciousness and being and we did another show um, with another very interesting neuroscientist patrick house on how we do the impossible or try to do the impossible uh, replicate our own unique interiority that's what uh, house described it as, and he has an intriguing new book out. It, in many ways, it's rather like a, uh, a novel. Uh, 19 Ways of Looking at Consciousness. Everyone has their own theory of consciousness. Uh, we all do, implicitly or otherwise. And my guest today, John Harrington, uh, is an academic at Oxford, and he has his new book out uh, on consciousness, Appropriately enough. It's called Consciousness, How Our Brains Turn Matter into Meaning. Uh, And he is joining us from North Yorkshire. He normally lives and works in Oxford. Um, John, welcome and congratulations uh, on the new book. Thank you. These are big issues, John, right? I mean, to to what extent are all these books, yours and others, speculative?
1: I think speculative in the sense that um, we've been debating and um, talking about consciousness, the nature of it probably for millennia, certainly at least as uh, we can go back in terms of recorded views. But Aristotle had ideas about consciousness. Um, I think it's an incredibly complex thing to try and understand and a very difficult thing to understand. But I think recent advances in neuroscience are making, bringing things into more perspective. But I also think that we need to have a very clear idea of what we mean by consciousness if we're going to make sense of the, of the data that we're getting from neuroscience.
0: Well, you've led me to to that question. Uh, How would you define consciousness? What does it mean to
1: you? For me, we have to really try and explain what makes human consciousness specifically different from that of animals. So I I, I believe that all sorts of other species have a kind of a consciousness. But for me, there's something quite unique about the human mind It's trying to explain how that came about, uh, that is what I'm trying to do in the book. And I think that's all related to our evolution uh, from it, uh, I think there were certain things that happened when we evolved that set us on a completely different path to other species, and that's—I don't think that's something that so, some of the people think in the field. I mean, there are people I've spoken to in neuroscience who think there's really just more like a, a kind of spectrum, and we we're very just one, one end of it. Whereas I think there's been a real shift in our consciousness uh, during our evolution.
0: Yeah, We did a, a show last week with Richard Rhodes, who has a new biography out of uh, E.O. Wilson, of course, the Ant-Man. Uh, do we share anything with ants, John, uh, when it comes to consciousness, or are we entirely separate?
1: Absolutely. I mean, at the molecular and cellular level, we share all, all, all sorts of things in, uh, with other animals, and, and that includes ants, certainly with, with the mammals, or the primates, but I think it's trying to find that difference, the thing that's emerged that makes us special, That is what I've been trying to do. And of course, we have to root it, unless you've got any kind of supernatural ideas about the soul and, and, and that kind of side of looking at consciousness. I think that ultimately we have to explain it in material terms, which means molecular and cellular mechanisms. But we also have to try and then explain why we are different from other species.
0: And I want to get to your explanation of, of, of the molecular uh, elements which distinguish us. But you you said, almost as, uh, as a throwaway remark, what makes us special as humans? Uh, some people, probably not scientists, but cu- culture writers of one kind or another, might interpret that as a kind of anthropomorphism, uh, which in itself might be dangerous and they might be critical of. Do we have to be anthropomorphic, Do, uh, in terms of making sense of our consciousness, John?
1: I think that we've got to be careful to see ourselves as rooted in, in biology and in evolution, if you really want to look at things scientifically. And I think that there's, there would be a danger in thinking we were special in the sense that other species didn't matter. Clearly, that would be a big problem at the moment, given how we're destroying so many species around the world with our activities. But I do think it's important to face up to what makes us different and acknowledge that, not as some kind of thing where we're superior and, you know, the other species uh, don't matter, but more uh, being realist about what is different about us. And I think we can often take for granted the things that are special about us. Um, perhaps we're so, we're so used to looking at ourselves and, and taking it for granted. But, but I think it's very important to do so.
0: We're speaking with John Parrington. Um who has an interesting new book out. It's appropriately entitled Consciousness, um, and it focuses on what makes us different and what makes us essentially human. Um, John, you ask in the book, uh, or the subtitle of the book is how our brains turn matter into meaning uh what exactly does that mean uh does that mean that brains aren't fully formed that when we come into the world uh we don't have meaning and that we need to experience that matter
1: yeah i think it's something that's that's come about through our evolution so the fact that we started to move away from how other species interact with the world by developing tools and technologies during our evolution i think was the first crucial thing. Well, actually, standing on two legs was the first crucial thing. And then that kind of led to us then having hands, feet to develop tools and develop in a kind of systematic way and and keep producing new types of tools. I think that's what's unique about human beings. From that, we then started to interact with each other uh, through this process of using tools to transform the world around us. And that then led to language. And I think that's the crucial uh, thing, that language. Although the species communicate using sounds, only human language is an abstract system of, um, it's a system of abstract symbols linked together in a very specific way by grammar that allows us to conceptualize about the world. And I think that's where the meaning comes from the fact we can develop concepts. And I think that has also influenced the way we think. It's not the way we express ourselves to others, but the very nature of our thought has been transformed by that kind of conceptual thinking.
0: John, lots of thought these days about AI, uh, generative AI in particular. You've written both in the book and in in some of your other writings on whether computers will ever or soon even outthink humans. What does our, our interest in making machines, not just intelligent, but able to replicate language, what does that say? Not about machines, but about us.
1: I think human beings have this urge to create and to develop new things, new technologies, new tools, new art, new culture. And I think that's as a scientist, I can see the the draw of that. It's it's fascination with trying to push, push, push the boundaries. And if, I think that's why if we're forever trying to refine and, and uh, develop our technologies. And I think that's why. Uh, AI, if you want to call it that. Um, I'm a bit of a skeptic about what we actually mean by computer technology in the sense of it being actually intelligent. But but I think certainly it's amazing what's, what is being developed uh, in, in terms of what computers can do. And I think that is part of our species being, it, it is that urge to kind of recreate and so create and create new technologies all the time, pushing pushing the boundaries. Yeah. So what
0: happens as AI becomes more sophisticated? We've had Gary Marcus on the show lots of times an AI expert we've had lots of shows on this Gary at the moment is somewhat of a set a skeptic but I think he acknowledges that as we work on this AI at some point we won't just get beyond the Turing test we'll be able to create machines that really are able to talk what does that mean in terms of consciousness for you in terms of of your analysis and what distinguishes us? Will we be joined by smart machines in what makes us different, special?
1: I am a skeptic. It would be probably very rash to try and say that there won't be at some point machines that can think intelligently and actually um, have a sense of self-awareness and all these things. But I am a skeptic for two reasons. I think one is that the brain, the human brain, is so much more complex than I think some people who try and draw analogies between um, computer technology and, and, and the human brain w- really recognize. I, I don't think that things like the neural nets that are, that are created, uh, the machine learning, it's supposed to be mimicking the brain, but I see huge differences. So, so I think it's going to be potentially very difficult to recreate the kind of self conscious awareness, conceptual thinking that we have in our brains. And I think, obviously, what we've seen is some incredibly sophisticated. Um, tools that, that can do all sorts of things like, you know, write an essay, for instance, about a topic that seems to make sense to some extent, though there's all sorts of I think, flaws there. But I think what's missing is any sense that the machine is somehow aware of what it's doing. And I think that's why the meaning bit is, is still missing from these uh, so-called AI systems.
0: Is your argument about language, does that explain why philosophers, particularly modern philosophers and Wittgenstein for example have been so obsessed with the meaning of language how does your theory fit in to the modern history of philosophy
1: yeah i think i think it's definitely true that what we mean by what words mean is in itself an interesting kind of disputed area i mean for me what's really interesting about the human brain is on the one hand its a biological entity and it does develop as as we as we grow up from babyhood to adulthood and i do but i think also because language is such a key part of our consciousness it also means that we have to some extent a social brain that our brains are as much a social product as they are an individual biological product and it's that interaction i think that's particularly fascinating
0: so in a way your notion of a social brain reflects some of the the communitarian idealists uh, in Silicon Valley—the idea of the internet as some sort of uh, reflection of, of of a collective intelligence of humanity.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think this this interaction has been going on for you know, ever since we started to learn to talk and interact with each other. So, in a way, the internet is just one more the, the latest manifestation of that. Um, you know, I'm sure when the telephone was first invented, it opened up all sorts of opportunities and things i'm not saying the internet's not a massive thing compared to that but actually i think each new generation in some ways finds new ways to interact and communicate and that i think has an, an impact on consciousness so consciousness in itself is continually developing historically in human species
0: so media itself whether it's writing or the publication of books um it's not a consequence you're suggesting of consciousness in a way it's simultaneously that the cause and effect
1: I, I think it's what's really important to to um to recognize is just how much language plays a role within our brains i think there's often this idea that we have thoughts and then we use language to express ourselves and somehow they're kind of different whereas i think what's really going on is that there's a kind of inner speech in our heads that that to some extent thought the material force of thoughts to some extent is is through words and I think that makes us different to other species because they have thoughts obviously they're probably quite sophisticated thoughts I'm sure but but because they can't these are not expressed as language they don't have that conceptual underpinning that I think makes us very different so you could argue that when we develop new ways to communicate new technologies this in itself changes our consciousness I'm, I'm sure my children's consciousness to some extent is different from mine partly because of the ways that the internet has influenced them as they grew up
0: we are speaking with john parrington it's a fascinating conversation uh i have to admit it makes me feel intellectually quite inadequate because these are such huge issues he's coming out with a new book in december consciousness how our brains turn matter into meaning and i want to thank uh, our sponsor liberties a quarterly journal of culture and politics it may not be a scientific journal but it's addressing the big issues in our culture uh and they've enabled the broadcasting of this show i'm going to run a short ad and then we'll be back with john uh parrington to talk more identity inner speech in our head social brains and language and of course above all else consciousness so we'll be back in about 33 and a half seconds don't go away anyone Liberties is almost as valuable as our brains, and it's a product of our brains, too. And you can subscribe at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with um, John Parrington. He teaches at Oxford University and researches there, and he has a new book, Consciousness How Our Brains Turn Matter into Meaning. Uh, John, I've been meaning to ask you this. Uh, Raphael Yuste's book, Lectures in Neuroscience, suggests that the human brain is perhaps the most intricate and fascinating object in the known universe. I, I've read that elsewhere. Is it true? Or is that your view?
1: I think it has to be, because um, at the moment, unless we've, until we discover alien species that are more intelligent than us, then it's, it's the most complex thing we know. Absolutely, yeah.
0: But is it more complex than black holes? Is it more complex than the universe itself? And at what point, if we believe that, then... Uh, might we assume that the universe itself is a product of our brain?
1: I mean, it's, it's true. There are some amazing phenomena out there in the universe that we only partially understand. It, it says something that we, only, we we don't really have a theory that explains everything in terms of the origin of the universe, how the quantum world in, you know, relates to the, the vast expanse of the universe. And that in itself is one of the fascinations of science that we're trying to grapple with these complexities. But I think certainly in terms of what we what we know, and that includes everything we know about the universe, the human brain is, is the most complex object, partly because of its huge, you know, the number of cells, the way they interact, all those interconnections, that's something I don't think we see anywhere else, the, though life itself is is incredibly complex for that matter, that matter. The more we learn about even the simplest bacteria, the, the more we realise that they're incredibly complex objects.
0: And maybe another way of, of putting it, given that it's supposed to be the most complex object, is that we don't really understand it. You're in the business of, of making sense of the brain, John, but uh, we're profoundly ignorant about it, aren't we? What don't we know? What are the most striking things for you as a, as a student of the brain that, that we don't know?
1: I think one thing we're still lacking is a sense of how it works as a whole, because you could argue that one of the big breakthroughs, for instance, in the 17th century was Harvey realising that the heart worked like a pump. We kind of think of the um, kidney working like a filtration device. So in a sense, we've got a kind of metaphor for these things. I think we still kind of lack a sense of how the brain really works as a whole. We've got this object. I've never held one in my hand, but apparently it's uh, you know about the size of a... Um, of bags of sugar and it and it you know like it's got a consistency of, of cold porridge and you can obviously see in, in interesting structures within it and uh, there are regions of the brain that seem to play particular roles but i still don't think we fully understand how it all interconnects but i do think that's starting to change actually
0: do you think that it's complexity it's profundity and the fact that we are still remain so profoundly ignorant about it might drive students like yourself of the brain into one kind of spirituality or another.
1: It's not something I I would follow. I, I'm an, I'm an atheist at heart, really. I, I I'm I don't think you should reduce things to matter. I think in a way I'm I'm quite spiritual in the way I think, but purely in a kind of material way. I don't believe in the supernatural. So my idea of how we're going to explain the brain has to be ultimately to explain it purely in material terms i don't think that though means being simplistic uh, in any sense i mean i think one thing that's really starting to change in my mind about my understanding of how the brain works is that i'm starting to see that previous ideas that saw it as just a, a, a circuit diagram you know like an electronic circuit mm. is only half of the story and that's the bit that's exciting about some of the new the new evidence that's coming from neuroscience
0: your book like all books is presented as bringing a new theory i'm quoting from the description suggesting a a, a radical new theory of human consciousness uh arguing that a, a qualitative leap in consciousness occurred during human evolution as language and the use of tools transformed our brains we've already talked about the role of language i mean you're obviously gonna it's it's your theory so you think it's important but what is the, the consensus within the field at the moment? Uh, is what you're saying and the role of language, is it radically left field or or, or or is the field so open that there are many different theories?
1: I think there are many different theories. I've had interesting discussions with, with neuroscientists who don't really think, I think, that there's a radically... That the human brain is radically different to that of, of other species. I think they would probably find it surprising I see such a, a shift uh, having occurred in our evolution. Um, in many ways I've been influenced by the ideas of previous uh, philosophers of language, psychologists, one in particular a guy who wrote in the years after the, the Russian Revolution, a guy called levygotsky Gotsky, I think really developed this idea that language has played this transformative role. But he died in 1934 so many many years ago and i suppose what i was trying to do in the book is to see whether his idea of a, the consciousness has been transformed by language and this ability to interact with the world through tools really matched up to what we were learning from neuroscience so in that sense i think it's cutting edge in that i bring on uh, what i see as the most you know up-to-date um new evidence that, that kind of backs up this idea
0: john what's the scientific consensus on when we Invented language on when we learned to speak or when we spoke. I mean, the notion of inventing language, I guess, in terms of your theory, it's more complicated than that. But when do we start using words, we humans?
1: That's a very difficult one to answer because whereas we can look at the fossil record and find tools and work out that, you know, we were using a certain kind of tool, whatever, a million years ago, obviously, language leaves no record. Um, I mean, we, we can look. But there must be speculation. I think, I mean, personally, I think it must have been pretty early on. And I think there was probably a connection between us starting to use tools and that kind of development of, of language. There is some interesting evidence showing that parts of the brain involved in using and developing tools seem to uh, overlap with those that, that are, uh, we use to to, to, to speak and, and to understand. So I think there's probably been a, a very interesting interaction going on for I would have said millions of years. So certainly predating Homo sapiens, you know, we could be thinking about Neanderthals, but even much earlier than that, I think.
0: And You use the word tools, which is another way of talking about technology. So technology has always been central to uh, evolution. Does your theory, John, of evolution and the way in which consciousness and language are so bound up with one another, does that suggest that the brain has become more sophisticated in turning matter into meaning as our language has developed or in a contrary sense, given a lot of the inanity on the internet these days, perhaps our brains aren't quite as sophisticated as they were in the age of Shakespeare or Plato or Aristotle or the the Christian Bible.
1: I don't think we should underestimate the sophistication of our minds, despite the fact that it might seem like we often use it for some pretty frivolous purposes. I, I kind of think that in Shakespeare's time, there was probably quite a lot of um, frivolity <laughs> as well. I, I don't know. And but, uh, he puts
0: that into his work; it's what gives it its its universality. I think.
1: Mean. True, actually, I think the kind of combination of pathos and tragedy with humour human in Shakespeare in itself is is an interesting, you know, it's an interesting way. He does it really? And, and it shows just how creative uh, an individual human being can be in that sense
0: and what about all these theories of the bible for example being a collective endeavor does your theory make these great books and the monotheistic creeds of islam judaism and christianity obviously come to mind does that make them in an odd way the central product of our brains of our consciousness
1: I think that human culture is definitely a very collective endeavour. It can often seem to you know, ordinary people that they can only look up to, you know, great thinkers, great artists, great musicians and things. And But I, I think, ultimately, it's, it's about us as a, as, as a species, really, developing culture, developing new ideas. And I don't think we should underestimate the, the power of, of anyone's mind, really, it, it, even, you know, supposedly just ordinary people.
0: Well, it's yeah. art, isn't it? I mean, in a sense, I mean, what, what is your theory suggesting about, I don't know, rap music, for example, which not everyone um, associates with high culture, but it's as much a product of our brain and language as, as Shakespeare.
1: Actually, there's so some fascinating lyrics in, in, in some rap, um, I, I think. And, and yeah, I,
0: I, 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 mean, I mean it in that sense.
1: Yeah, and I, and I think that's what's exciting about music. Uh, science, the way they develop, and often come up with some quite surprising new directions. And that, I think the creativity of the human mind is is the exciting bit. I think one thing that I really would say is a message from my book is, is the dynamic aspects of the human brain. And actually, I think we're also starting to realize that other species' brains are also incredibly dynamic. So in a sense, I'm building out what we're starting to learn about, you know, for instance, monkey brains. that They're much more fluid and dynamic than we might have thought. But I think we take it to another level uh, with human consciousness.
0: We've talked about language, art, creativity, music. What about morality? You wrote an interesting piece, uh, John, on whether or not pedophiles are born or made. I think universally most people, the vast majority of humans think that paedophilia is immoral unacceptable uh, and people need to be put in jail for that what does your theory tell us about morality and the way in which we consider some things to be beyond the law and punishable
1: i think if we have if we want to understand human consciousness in its entirety we do have to look at some rather unsavory aspects of consciousness I, i wrote a chapter in my last book about serial killers, paedophiles. I was on a documentary. Right,
0: and and that book was Mind Shift, another interesting book, how culture transformed the human brain. So in many ways, this new book is a continuation on that theme.
1: True, yeah. And and recently I appeared in a documentary about the serial killer uh, Ian Brady, who in the 1960s with his uh, partner Myra Hindley tortured and murdered children. And it's distasteful. It's not an easy thing to write about it or talk about, it really. But... In a way i think we need to try and explain these people if we want to well i think it's it's part of science to try and explain all aspects of consciousness but hopefully also to try and ways try and find ways to prevent these kind of things happening i don't think it would be an easy thing but i think the more we understand these kind of people we can try and find ways to prevent such horrible things happening
0: but what about something like pedophilia i mean for if an alien landed on earth they might be slightly confused that we celebrate sexual union between men and women between men and men and women and women, and women but we, we we uh we make uh, sex between adults and, and children illegal and it's considered the worst of all evils in many ways in our culture
1: if we were to only look at our closest species i mean there's these bonobo chimpanzees it'd be surprising what seems to be miscible in those societies there's sex between adults and children there's incest there's all sorts of things going on but the thing is as human beings we've kind of developed in our own way and i suppose we've also developed specific forms of morality that don't necessarily apply to other species and i think that's i mean there's i wouldn't i wouldn't have time to even go into why those things have developed but um it's clearly something that has become an important part of society and um And that's, I think, why people feel such disgust and and, uh, about. But does does your
0: analysis of consciousness, does it suggest that all morality is plastic, is invented, and that there's nothing intrinsically good or evil?
1: I think it's definitely true that morality is a culturally defined thing, and it evolves, and I'm sure that certain things that happened in the past you know, burning witches at the stake, uh, you know, burning witches. Um, some of the things in, you know, in ancient Greece, slaves. All these things we would now see as abhorrent. So it's clearly the case that morality itself evolves and, and can change. I I think there's probably certain basic things that you would hope would be, you know, beyond the pale. You know, murdering people. That, that's not good surely but but clearly the context in which these things happen has been quite different in the past and even today i mean some horrendous things happens in war situations um you know that we we, we shouldn't ignore really
0: but I, I i've often wondered and i'm certainly not alone here in, in a few hundred years people will look back at us and think they they murdered other creatures to feed themselves when they didn't need to uh every every culture has uh moments like that doesn't it john and and especially in terms of our relations with other species everything seems to be changing so dramatically we've done so many shows on why we're alike why we're not alike can we talk to animals why should we respect them the whole issue of speciesism so something's changing here isn't it
1: i mean one of the most tragic things about the current situation for me is the fact that we are a species that i think are, unlike any other species is, has got this ability to conceptualize about the world to recognize what the world is out there to know about past present and future all these things that i don't think other animals have and yet clearly we're out of control in many ways the fact you know that it's predicted that maybe you know um percent of species may be extinct within the by the end of the century, the fact that we're heading for disaster apparently with global warming says that we're not really in control of what we're doing. And I, I think that's a horrible thing in the sense that we ought to be, you know, sus- having a sustainable and ethical society. And clearly that's not the case at the moment. So, so it's a big dysfunction there going on and a big contradiction about uh, having this ability, this amazing ability to be aware of what we're doing and, and yet still be heading for, for what seems like destruction
0: you wrote an interesting piece also on the brain and consciousness and drug use um uh, you asked did drug use help development of of human consciousness some people believe it did or does we did a show with um uh with um andy mitchell has a new book out 10 trips the new reality of psychedelics i actually think he's based in yorkshire too how do or how should and shouldn't drugs change consciousness? After all, psychedelics are, are meant to, and correct me if I'm wrong, intensify consciousness. Are drugs are designed to reduce consciousness?
1: I think there's no doubt at all that drugs have played a fascinating role in our development as a species. There's evidence that people used to think the first hunter-gatherers Turn into agriculture is because they decide well, we'll grow crops so we can eat, and we'll, and then eventually they started them to uh, grow uh, the, the plants that you could use to make beer. There's now some interesting evidence that it was actually the developing the beer that got them interested in being stationary in the first place. And then there's a, a potential argument there that actually having uh, something like alcohol as a drug helped to bring people together, maybe expanded their horizons. You know, when they were drunk, uh, then they with some crazy ideas that might have actually helped us develop as a species maybe not the morning after when they had to the hangover, but so that's one example alcohol i think has played a very interesting role in our past history and, and i think similarly psychedelics yeah there's some interesting speculation that that also may have helped develop our consciousness in the past
0: final question john there's so much to talk here about uh, and people need to read your book um Consciousness uh, is just out, or it will be out. How, how our brains turn matter into meaning. We live in the century, probably not of AI. I think historians will look back at the twenty-first century as the age of biotech. What do your theories about consciousness? What do they suggest about what governments should and shouldn't be regulating when it comes to biotech? In other words, what excites you about biotech, and what scares you?
1: I mean, as a scientist, I'm excited by all the new potential. I'm a genetic engineer uh, and I use this routinely in my lab. We've used it to develop uh, genetically modified animals to study different aspects of disease. We modify human cells to study cancer. We're getting closer and closer to being able to modify human beings if we wanted to at the embryo stage. That's now possible. And certainly we can start to do gene therapy in living adult people. Now, at the moment, that's all been channeled into trying to cure diseases like cystic fibrosis, Huntington's, these kind of disorders that can cause a huge amount of suffering. But of course, it does raise the possibility that we might want to tweak the genome in all sorts of other ways. And I think that raises all sorts of ethical issues, uh, without a doubt.
0: To put it mildly, tweak, I mean, that's the ultimate euphemism, isn't it, Joe?
1: I mean, it's only one of many technologies. There's another technology called optogenetics that allows you to uh, switch neurons on or off using light. At The moment it's being done in mice with various uh, genetic engineering technology and fiber optic cables. There's speculation about whether it could be used to try and treat chronic pain. But of course, it could also be used for other purposes, maybe to, you know, alleviate depression or even erase memories. There's evidence that in mice you can erase memories or stimulate hidden memories uh, using this method could it ever be used in people and should it be that's a big question i think but but it's becoming more and more a possibility for definite
0: i think it's the biggest question and more specifically can we trust the elon musks and the jeff bezos's and the mark zuckerberg's and the steve jobs of the world with this stuff i was at the dld conference last christmas uh, last january in munich and i sat next to a guy who told me that he was inventing a uh, a brain that he could grow I mean I'm not sure whether how or whether that was real or not but as you know
1: as a genetic engineer we're not that far away from that future absolutely yeah I mean brain organoids they're a crude approximation of a brain in their kind of embryonic scale but who knows that the, the way it's developing we might end up with something that's possible like that I think we need legislation for definite but of course people can ignore that, that there, there is a couple of twins who were created by gene editing in china a few years ago and that was done illegally and they're they're alive you know they're growing up with that uh, um having that having